0: Father, I thank you so much for uh, the chance to be a part of the greater body of Jesus Christ. We're thankful that uh, there are so many people gathered together around the world today for the purpose of remembering him, of honoring and worshiping you, Lord. This morning, I would pray uh, for Element Church and for Pastor Jeff and the ministry at that church, Lord. I know that they uh, have had a, a great work in the city of Cheyenne, that a number of people have joined the kingdom because of what they're doing. Lord, I would pray that you would keep them faithful to your word, that you would edify and encourage the people in that church, that you would protect their leadership and allow them to have a, a long ministry life in Cheyenne. Father, I also think of another church in town that we've planted. That's Calvary South, uh, one of the churches that uh, we see as a, a mission of our church. And so. This morning, Lord, I would pray the same things for them. I thank you for Josh and his leadership there. I thank you for the elders that you've raised up to uh, help him and come alongside him. Lord, I thank you for the people that have gathered together at that church that will be gathering together this morning at uh, 10 a.m. Uh, Lord, I would pray that the word would be strong there. I'm thankful for uh, the ministry of the word that they're doing that models the similar thing that we are, just teaching verse by verse through your word. As they're. Uh, working through the book of Corinthians, Lord, I pray that you would begin to answer some of those questions about how to do church and how to deal with uh, difficulties in the church. Lord, would you edify and encourage the people there? Father, for our ministries here in this church this morning, I want to lift up our deacons, uh, that they are uh, in many ways unsung heroes of this church, that they make sure all kinds of things are done in the background so that we can just come and enjoy service. So we're thankful for uh, the setting up of the communion and the taking out of the trash and the picking up of the offering, Lord, and for the making sure there's toilet paper and soap in the bathrooms and uh, all the things that are done by deacons during the week to make sure that the building is ready as well, Lord. Uh, uh, just so blessed by their ministry and pray that you would encourage them today uh, and that they would be encouraged by other believers as well. Oh, Father, for the word this morning, uh, it's my belief that your word is mighty and it's powerful and that it works amazingly in life in the life of people. Uh, I know that I've already spoke uh, to somebody this week just through the reading and preparation that he was immensely blessed uh, blessed by this chapter. And so I would pray the same would be true as we go to you in your word, that your spirit would be speaking to us specifically the things uh, that would apply to our individual lives, that the word taught would be implanted in the heart of the believer and that it would bear much fruit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're in the Gospel of John. If you uh, need a Bible, you can raise your hand. Someone will bring one to you so you can follow along with us. If you're new with us and are not sure how we do things, we are just working our way through the Bible. However, we've started this new uh, way of doing it on Sunday mornings where we're going to take one chapter a week, working our way more quickly through the Bible, which will allow us over the course of five years to get through the entire New Testament, to just keep that word uh, flowing and going. And so we are in our 17th week of doing that. I know that because this is our first book and we're in John 17. So uh, as we get to John 17, uh, we remember that the whole reason that the book of John was written, we're told, is so that you would believe, that all of these things were written so that you would believe. Uh, But what's powerful about this particular passage is we're seeing Jesus having spent time with his disciples preparing now to go to the cross. And after this last couple of chapters in 13, 14, 15, 16, kind of spending that last night with them, here in chapter 17, he's going to pray for his disciples. And this morning, what I would like to do, just a little bit different than we normally would, um, I would like you to imagine, if you can, that you have just spent three years day in, day out with Jesus. You have now spent the last couple of hours with him explaining to you that he's about to leave the earth and then he begins to pray for you personally and so I'm going to pray through or read through this passage but I want you to hear it as if Jesus is praying for you personally so that you can hear the type of prayer uh, that comes out of this and so it starts in verse one and I will be reading the whole thing so it might take a moment or two Uh, but uh, uh, but try to just envision yourself in this situation with Jesus, where it says, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and He said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify Your Son, that the Son may glorify You, even as You gave Him authority over all flesh, that to all whom You have given Him He may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom You have sent, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which, was, uh, which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name in the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. From the words which you gave me, I have given them, given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that, you, so that they may have My joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I've made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. And so we have this great prayer of Jesus. It's also called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. It's him interceding on our behalf. And the prayer roughly breaks out into three sections. Section one, the first couple of verses there is Jesus praying for himself. And then he begins to pray for the 11 apostles who are there with him. And then starting in verse 20, and this is the part that I think is key for us to grasp before we go forward. In verse 20, uh, he begins to pray for all those after these guys who will believe. Uh, I wrote in the Bible, me, me. This is Jesus praying for me. But what I like about this in verse 20 is the way he prays it. He says, I don't ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through the word. And in other words, all the things he just prayed for the 11 apostles, he's also praying forward for us. And so this morning we're going to see uh, not what would Jesus do. We've been seeing that. Instead, we're going to see what would Jesus pray. And then hopefully through that, we can learn how we can pray as well. Uh, this prayer is uh, more in depth really than you can handle probably in, in the course of one sermon. Uh, I've seen uh, many pastors take this one verse at a time and preach a sermon on each one and so I'm not, I'm not saying that I'm going to be able to give you the fullness of it all Uh, But if we can just give you just in this moment, and and sometimes I worry that we try to break things down so much that we kind of miss what's going on. The apostles didn't stop Jesus every sentence and say, And what does that mean? And what does that mean? And what does that mean? And give him a half hour to speak about every sentence that he said. He put it all together as one prayer. So we want to try to keep it in that sense this morning. Uh, But. uh, just, I'm just reminded as we get into this, the last thing that Jesus said before he began this prayer in verse uh, 33 of chapter 16, I have overcome the world. So he's describing his death on the cross, but he says in that death, I have overcome the world. And then he begins to pray to his father. He starts by praying for himself and he tells them that the hour has come, glorify your son. And then he goes on and begins to explain a little bit more about what that means. He says that the Son may glorify you even as you gave Him authority over all flesh, but to all whom you have given Him He may give eternal life. This is eternal life that they may know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom You have sent. I glorified You on the earth having accomplished the work which You have given Me to do. Now, Father, glorify Me together with Yourself with the glory which I had with You before the world was. And there's probably a dozen things in there that you could focus on. But the main key uh, of what he's praying here is this word glory, that he would pray that he would be glorified with the Father. Or to say it maybe in a different way, uh, I would say it like, like this. I would say that as Jesus dies, raises from the dead, then ascends to the Father, that he would be glorified in that, that all of the attention would be focused on him, that people would begin to recognize him for who he really is. And as they recognize him, it won't just glorify him, but it will be glorifying the Father who sent him. That in the work that Jesus does in his death, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, that all of that would also glorify the Father who sent him into this earth. And as he's preaching all of these things in the midst of this prayer, praying for himself, uh, it's an important thing. One of the things that Jesus taught us to do is to pray for ourselves. Now, sometimes we have a habit to make that the only thing that we pray for. That's the part that we have to be careful in. That I think sometimes uh, I want us to recognize the difference here. Jesus spent five verses praying for himself, And then he spent the next 21 verses praying for everybody else. I think sometimes our prayers maybe look a little bit different. We might occasionally mention somebody else in prayer, but the rest of the time is spent on ourselves. I think that's a little bit backwards to the way that Jesus prayed. Uh, But in this first thing that he's praying, he's praying for himself, but the heart of his prayer is really the heart of the Christian's life that he would glorify the Father for us. The heart of the Christian's life is that we would glorify the father, that our life glorifies him. And this is the idea that he's trying to get across there, but that glory comes in this case, in his death, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven. Uh, He started it out in verse one by saying, the hour has come. And this is the hour that has been being built up to all throughout this time, this death of Jesus. There is an important verse though, that I don't want to neglect as we try to get the whole meaning in this. In verse three, He describes for us eternal life. It's a powerful verse. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's eternal life right there. Knowing the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom He sent. It's all wrapped up in that. Uh, So many people know religious systems. They practice religious things. They have religious habits. But unless they know the only true God and His Son, Jesus Christ, those systems fall short of life. And they become a distraction to the truth of who God is. Some people worship those systems more than they worship the God who gave us those ideas, those thoughts, or those systems. Jesus is pointing out that all of eternal life is wrapped up in him and his father. Then he begins to pray now for his 11 disciples. I say 11 because one of the guys has already uh, left town. That's Judas. He's gone on to betray Jesus. That'll play an integral part in chapter 18. Judas will come back, but he's missing the good prayer. And so in verse 6, we'll take this longer section here through verse 12, Jesus says, I have manifested your image, I'm sorry, I've manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I've given to them and they received them and truly understand that I came forth from you and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on the behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given to me, for they are yours and all things that are mine are yours and yours are mine and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world and yet they themselves are in the world and I come to you, Holy Father, Keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, uh, that the scriptures would be fulfilled. He turns his attention now to praying for the eleven, but I want to remind you that everything he prays for the eleven In verse 20, he asks also for those who believe in the word after that. So even though he's praying contextually and in that moment for the 11, he's actually praying for you. These are the things he's praying for you. I love the way that in this prayer, he's actually praying to God, but encouraging the people he's praying for. One of the habits I've tried to get in, Uh, and I don't do it perfectly, but I've tried to get in this habit. If somebody says, Sean, will you pray for me? In the past, I've always said yes, and then hope that I remember to pray for them the next time that I'm praying. But what I found more powerful is when somebody says, Sean, will you pray for me? That I stop wherever we are, whether it's Walmart or at work, or wherever I happen to be, that when somebody says, well, you pray for me, we just stop and we pray right in that moment. See, there's power in the prayer being heard by God the Father, but there's also power for those who you're praying for that they hear you, representing you before God the Father. So when Jesus starts this out, he starts praying to God. He's basically going before God on behalf of his disciples, and he's kind of bragging about them. He goes to his father, he goes to God, and he says, Lord, those you gave me out of the world, they kept your word. He's bragging about his 11 here. He's bragging about his people before the father. Those you gave me, they've kept your word. Now, I imagine for the 11 that are there in that moment, as they hear Jesus speak to his father in heaven and say, they, knowing that the they is them, Jesus saying to his father, they've kept your word. I imagine Peter went, why, yes, I did. (laughs) Wow, I did do that, didn't I? Like there's this building up and this encouragement that comes through prayer. The power of prayer is that God will respond on behalf of the prayer for the people. But there's also a power in that the people being prayed for hear what's being represented about them before God. It's a powerful thing that Jesus does by praying in such a way that they can hear it. He's going to say something similar in verse 13. I I come to you these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I'm speaking it here in the present world. Yes, it's going before the eternal glory of God into the eternity of heaven, but I'm speaking it in this world because it can give joy to the hearer of the prayer. It can give joy to these people that you're praying for. There's a value in that. One of the things I would like us to just be more careful to do is to pray for people with those people. That's certainly a powerful thing, but the thing that, be, that Jesus is, is really praying for them is that God would keep them in his name. That's the first major theme of prayer here. As Jesus is presenting his disciples, uh, he's praying that God would keep them in your name. And it's really kind of a powerful statement here. In in verse 11, "I I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one, While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them and not one of them perished. Now think about that. Jesus was saying prior to this, because he was with the disciples, he physically guarded them and kept them in the name of God. He kept them believing. He kept them in the word. He kept them. It says they have kept your word. Jesus says, I kind of helped make that happen. But I'm not gonna be here anymore, Father. Now he's asking God the Father to be the one to keep us in the word. Here's why this becomes important. Remember that Jesus had just taught the disciples in John chapter 15, you need to abide in the Father. So the instructions of the disciples to us, we have to abide, that we have a personal responsibility to remain in the things of God. We have that responsibility, but that responsibility does not rest 100% on us. We have with that responsibility, we also have God the Father keeping us in the Word. Now there's a strength to that bond. It goes way beyond what we could do in our own. It's not just that we abide, and yes, we need to abide. We need to persevere. We need to remain. We need to hold strong. But we're not doing it alone. God is doing it with us. He's helping us remain in the word or in in his name, remain in the faith. It's a powerful picture to me. It reminds me of, and maybe you've seen this, uh, probably not because none of you guys watch movies, but this is a repeated scene in movies. I've seen this in a number of movies. Bad guy falls off cliff or building or house or something, Right? And as he's falling, the good guy reaches his hand down and grabs that guy, and he's holding on to him, and he's struggling with all he has to hold on to that guy. And the bad guy who's holding on at first, all of a sudden, the bad guy lets go, and the good guy can't hold him anymore, and his hand just slips, and then... And bad guy falls to his death. That picture is made powerful for me in this... What God is describing is that He from heaven is keeping hold of us, but we on earth are keeping hold of Him. And the two together is where that strength is. There's too many people who rely 100% on God to the point of laziness in their faith. They're so trusting in God that they have no expectation of themselves. But all throughout Scripture, Jesus is declaring to His people, don't give up, persevere, continue on. There's a begging that happens there on our behalf that we would do our part. But there's also a trusting that God is doing his part. So if you're trying to do it all by yourself, you're not going to be able to do it. If you're trying to do nothing and you're just dead weight, that's not what's described in Scripture either. What's described is the two of you in connection that you doing your best to persevere, to remain, to abide and God the Father working on your behalf. The first prayer of Jesus was that God the Father would keep you in His name. That to me is comforting because when I'm hanging on with what feels like the very last of my strength, I'm reminded that it's not just in my strength that I hold on. And when my grip gives out, I have the help of the Father who's keeping me in His name. It's powerful and it's important for us to recognize that Jesus prays this for us. Verse 13, uh, he continues on in his prayer, but now I come to you and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them From the evil one. The next thing that Jesus prays is that God the Father would not just keep us in his name, but also keep us from the evil one. Uh, You may recall Jesus has previously taught his disciples how to pray. Uh, Matthew chapter 6, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Jesus is consistent with that model of prayer as he prays for us that we would be kept from the evil one. That Jesus recognizes the importance of limiting the ability of Satan to come after us. Back in the day, Saturday Night Live, they always had the church lady. And every time anybody did anything wrong or even that seemed quasi-wrong, hmm, could it be Satan? And some Christians have kind of adopted that into their life, and anytime anything bad happens, they just automatically assume it was Satan, because I obviously don't do anything bad myself, so if something bad happened, it must be Satan. But understand this, that, that Jesus has prayed that there be at least some keeping away of the evil one. We know that we're not fully kept from the evil one until that time that we enter into heaven. He's still roaming about this earth. He's looking to steal, to kill, to destroy. He's looking to devour the people of God. He's a deceiver. He's going to do anything he can to get us to give up, to abandon, to look away from God. That's his, his purpose in this world. But know that God is only allowing that to a certain extent. We get to see behind the scenes of that in the book of Job. Satan actually had to go to God and say, Can I have Job? Can I go after Job? Satan was allowed, but the fact that Satan has to be allowed would remind us that God knows how much we can bear. He knows how much we can handle. No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. And God is faithful, but He will not allow you, oh, now I've lost it, 1 Corinthians 10, to be tempted beyond what you are able. But in the temptation, He will provide for you a way of escape so that you are able to endure it. God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. And that's part of the answer to this prayer, keep them from the evil one, or keep the evil one from them. That there is this differentiation there, this separation. And for me, it's helpful because when I recognize temptation and struggles in my life, I can remind myself that none of those are more than I'm able to bear. None of them are. It's actually kind of helpful uh, when those difficult times come and you're thinking to yourself, I can't bear this anymore. I just can't take it anymore. Oh, wait a second. Jesus said I could. Okay, maybe I could take just a little bit more. I'm going to make it through this. I have this promise from God. I have this prayer from Jesus. That I can handle these things. Not in a prideful way where I just kind of walk into any temptation. I can handle it. Jesus said so. He said, keep the evil one from us. That still requires us to keep us from the evil one, right? God might be shooing the evil one away from us. Let's not chase him down and grab his tail. We're going to play that game. But when we're bearing with all that we can, when we're putting in all that we can to it, we find ourselves at the end of our rope, to to put it in a certain term. Let's remember that God will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we're able, that there is a keeping from the evil one. Verse 16, the next thing Jesus prays for us. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth, Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. The next thing that Jesus prays for his disciples and ultimately for us is that we would be sanctified in the truth. The word sanctified is similar to the concept of being set apart specifically set apart for God's use. It's a separation that happens uh, from us and the world. There's again this protective nature to it. Uh, Jesus is praying that his disciples would be set apart for God. Uh, Pastor Ron always had, I still think, the best illustration of sanctification I've ever heard. Uh, It goes back to the Greek word hagios, which reminds us of the important word haagen the ice cream. And if I put my name on that jug of Haagen-Dazs, it is set apart for my use. <laughs> in the same sense, what we're being told when it says sanctify them in the truth, set them apart with the truth, it's God setting us apart for his use. There's a separation between us and the world. And he describes that separation as coming through the truth, which he then defines as the word of God. I love to be able to stand on this as truth. We live in a world that tries to question every word of this as to whether or not it's true. And they will try to mock and shame us when we say this is truth. For me, Knowing that this is true, being able to rely on this as truth gives me a stability to stand in a world who has no concept of truth. The rest of the world says this is true until it's not true anymore, then this is true until we all vote and decide that's not true anymore, now this is true. There's no stability in this world. The whole world wants to say there's no absolute truth, but they say that in very absolute terms. It makes no sense to say there's no absolute truth because that statement in itself is an absolute statement of truth, which disproves the statement and proves there has to be absolute truth. For us, this is the absolute truth. And when we find ourselves aligning with this, it sets us apart from the world. It sets us apart on the firm foundation of God's truth. Satan and the world have been attacking the word word of God from the beginning. Did God really say? And it's continuing on today, this attack on the word of God. We need to be focused on the word of God because it's what separates us from the rest of the world. And my, my question to you is this. How does... The truth of the Word of God, or how has the truth of the Word of God separated you from the rest of the world? Is there a difference in your life because of God's Word that the rest of the world just doesn't get? Do you find yourself doing things, operating in things that the Scripture says that are true, these are the things we're supposed to do, and the world just looks at you and just just shakes their head? Really? You're going to do that? You know how old that book is, right? I do. Stood the test of time. You're really... That's kind of old-fashioned, isn't it? No. It's as true today as it was back then. The truth is the truth is the truth. There's no expiration date on it. Is this word separating you, setting you apart from the rest of the world because his word is truth. It's so important to us as a church. That's why we work verse by verse through the word, chapter by chapter through the word. We want to continually draw ourselves back to the word because this is truth. You can stand firm on the fact that this is true and that we are sanctified, we are set apart By the word of God. Now, there's a theological issue here that some people will have. And so I I want to uh, talk about this just very briefly. Some people will say to you that you were sanctified through the death of Jesus Christ, that you were set apart for God's use. And that is true. There was a permanent setting apart through the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we still live in this world. And what we see in the rest of Scripture beyond that concept is there's also a progressive nature to your sanctification. That although spiritually, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you've been set apart for God, there's actually a physical sanctification that progresses throughout your life, where over time, as you learn more and more about the Word and the God of the Word and what He expects of you, that more and more you start to match your actual life With your spiritual life, and you progressively become more and more like Jesus Christ in the way that you live. Yes, it's a permanent sanctification, but it's also progressive in nature in that we become more like Him. And you can see that laid out in various places in Scripture. We don't have time for it today, uh, but just know there's an expectation that we continue to go back to the Word. You weren't done with that concept. I've been saved now, I have my fire insurance, I no longer have to worry about that. Now I'm going to go back to life as normal. No, there's a change that's happening, and that change comes by the word of God working in the life of the believer. Verse 20 is now this transitional statement that applies everything that Jesus just said forward all the way to us. I wrote the word me with an exclamation point in the Bible here. Uh, Just as a reminder that he's talking about me here. Uh, He's talking about you who are believers in his word. He says this in verse 20. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who also believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me even as you have loved me and loved them even as you have loved me. Uh, this is a uh, Gail Irwin is a, a, a preacher. He has some great stories. He's great at, at, at the storytelling portion of preaching. Uh, but he has this great line that I think in John 17, he calls this the great unanswered prayer of Jesus. And that is that we would be one, that there would be unity in the body of Christ. Uh, it's one of the saddest things that those of us who are in Jesus Christ don't get along sometimes. It's heartbreaking that the family of God is disjointed and split. It's, It's dangerous. It's scary. It's one of the reasons we commit to pray for other churches in town every week, to just continually put before God and before you guys that we are not the only church in town. This is one building where the church meets that some of the people who are part of the church universal gather together in this place. And Jesus has prayed specifically for us that we would be one, that there would be a relational unity that he describes as the same that he and the Father has. That they would be one as, I am with you, Lord, and you, Lord, are with me, that they would be brought into that unity. And so now it's not just a unity within the body of Christ, the people, but it's a unity with Christ and with God the Father that there would be this oneness about us, that there would be this unity there. The question I would ask, what are the things that you do that either promote or disrupt this unity? What are the things that you do to work against this request of Jesus, that we be one. Sometimes it's in obvious ways, well, I don't like that church. Uh, The way they do music makes me pretty sure they're not saved. (laughs) Because, you know, salvation is based on style of music. They're a part of the body of Christ, they're just the part that has bad taste, right? It's fine but they're part of the body of Christ. Don't separate from them. I'm not saying you have to go to their church, but I'm just saying don't separate relationally from them. Stand with them and for them and pray for them. Don't pray against them. Some people say, well, I prayed for that church last week. I just prayed that God would strike them with lightning and they'd play good music. (laughs) Don't pray against them. Pray for them, that there would be this unity We have a weekly gathering at our church every Tuesday for pastors in the city of Cheyenne. We doctrinally have some differences, but we have some unity around the person and nature of Jesus Christ. Jesus has prayed that we would be one. We don't want to fracture that unity. The question then is how do we disrupt that unity? I would say one of the simplest ways we do that is broken relationships. It's not doctrine at all. Sometimes doctrine can get into things, but in general, it's just broken relationships. The people who were our friends and they did something and they offended us, and I don't have to hang out with them anymore. You are breaking the unity of the church. There should be a reconciliation of those relationships. If they've sinned against you, either forgive them, forget the sin in love, or confront them and give them a chance to repent. But don't just pretend they don't exist. Because they're going to be existing in eternity with you. You will get over it eventually. Deal with it now and experience the unity of heaven here. He prays that they would be one. He closes with this in verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for they, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you and these have known that you sent me and I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. This last prayer request would be that they would know Jesus the way that God did. He's praying forward to the time when we're going to see the glory of Jesus Christ in heaven. Now see if you can wrap your mind around this for just a minute. Jesus is the first human in the presence of God but he's not the last human to be in the presence or the glory of God. That we one day will be with Jesus in the presence, in the glory of God, that we will recognize the glory of God in Jesus. Clearly it'll be seen, but that we'll also experience the same unity, the same love that God has for Jesus. We will experience personally as we're in his presence. That is a more powerful prayer than I could have imagined. I would finish it up with this. I would ask, do we pray the way that Jesus prayed? Do we pray that we would glorify him with our life, but that that his people, do we pray for his people universally, that they would be kept in his name, Kept from the evil one, sanctified in truth, that they would be unified and that they would be in the presence of the glory of God, experiencing His love. It's a great model for us to be able to pray for the church, local and universal. So let's close by praying this way: Heavenly Father, I would pray for our church that we would glorify You and Your Son Jesus Christ in everything that we do and say. That you, Lord, would be honored because of the things we do in this world and that that would draw other people's attention to you that they might be saved. A Father, for your church, for this church, but for your church universal, for the believers that are here today, Lord, I would pray that you would work alongside them as they abide in you, that you would keep hold of them that neither side would let go, that you would keep them strongly in your faith. Oh, Father, would you protect them from the evil one. Oh, Father, for those who work on his behalf. Father, would you help them to stand up, to endure, to bear under the temptations of this world. Lord, I would pray also that you would sanctify us in your word, that your word would become more and more true to us and more and more reflective of who we are, that we would become more like your word. That we would become more like your son. Father, would you keep us in unity? Would you keep us as one? Lord, would you allow us to mend broken relationships and to love Those who worship you truthfully, but just in different ways than we do. Father, that minor pieces of doctrine, not the important ones, but the minor pieces of doctrine, those that don't have any impact on salvation, that those things would not separate friends and families and churches. We would have unity in that, even in the midst of the diversity of the way that people worship you. Oh, Father, that we would experience your love, the same love that you've shown your Son, Jesus Christ, that we would each personally experience. it. Lord, we look forward to the day that we will be in your glory. And until then, Lord, help us to manifest your glory to this world, we pray today in Jesus' name. Amen.